QR code that you can snap a picture of um, and fill out the Connect card that way. Just let someone from our welcome team know in the back that uh, you're brand new here so that we can give you free stuff. Um, with that said, uh, a huge thanks to Jimmy last week for filling in admirably and uh, teaching on Malachi. That's not easy. Uh, if you've been in church for some time, I don't know when was the last time you heard somebody preach from Malachi. I've never heard a sermon from Malachi. So thank you to Jimmy for the very first sermon I've ever heard from Malachi. Uh, but we believe in the power of God's word. And that's why we do that here. We're always going to teach from the Bible. Uh, and so now, believe it or not, we're in week seven of our series called The Story. And what we're doing is we're going from Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, and we're marching all the way through to Revelation in 10 weeks to give the grand story of the Bible. Our vision as a church is simply that everybody on planet Earth is captivated by well-told stories, and we believe that the greatest story of all exists in the 66 books of the Bible. It's the story of how God is redeeming this world and how he's redeeming us uh, in, included in it. And so what Jimmy taught last week was uh, we saw this nation, Israel, go from a family with Abraham to becoming a large group of people with Moses to becoming a, a little kingdom with David. And from David, right after that, if you remember two weeks ago, uh, David's grandson, Rehoboam, comes up to the throne and he starts listening to the advice of his young friends rather than uh, the wisdom of, of the older men around him. And as a result, he starts to worship foreign gods and uh, it causes the, the kingdom of Israel to be split in two. You get 10 tribes in the north of Israel and two tribes in the south of Judah. And God punishes them by sending the nation of Assyria to come and take the northern tribe captive and bring them into exile. Not too long after that, about 150 years later, we see the same thing happen to Judah, the southern tribe, where they're sinning, they're worshiping foreign gods, they're bowing down to idols, and even in some cases performing child sacrifices. And so what God does to punish them is he sends the nation of Babylon in to take the Judahites captive and put them in, in exile in Babylon. And with all of that happening, God never loses his faithfulness to his people Israel, continues to promise that he's going to bless them, he's going to restore them, he's going to bring them back. And we heard those words last week through Malachi. But with that said, the Israelites, understanding that God's going to continue to be faithful to, to them, they began to have an attitude of presumption. They began to believe that because they were from Israel, because they're physical descendants of Abraham, that God was obligated to bless them based on ethnic descent. And so Malachi delivered a message of repentance, saying you need to turn from those wicked ways and embrace God by faith in order to be truly saved. See, what they needed to understand was that salvation, and what we need to understand, salvation doesn't come by heritage, doesn't come by location, doesn't come by culture, doesn't come by, by human effort at all. Salvation is a gift, and it's a gift given by God alone. So what we're looking at this morning is that Jesus, the God that we came here to worship this morning, is both fully God and fully man, and he has dwelt among us in order to give us that gift of salvation. So we're going to do this in two simple points. We're going to talk about who the Word is and what the Word does. Back in uh, 325 A.D., so this is way back. I wasn't alive then. I don't know if any of you were. 
325 AD, there was this large council in a place called Nicaea. What they did is they gathered about 300 bishops from around the world, church leaders, to go and discuss the nature of who Jesus Christ is. Lots of notable people were at that meeting, but there's two that we're going to talk about this morning. The first of which is a man named Arius. From, uh, he's a priest from Alexandria, Egypt. The second is a man named St. Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, or better known as Santa Claus. So what the council again gathered to discuss was the nature of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, they wanted to form kind of this collective Christian opinion, or not opinion, a, a collective statement on who Jesus Christ is based on what the Bible teaches us. And they began forming the statement and, uh, and, and, and coming up with, with real precise words and language. Here's what we're going to say about who Jesus Christ is. And one of the phrases in the statement is that Jesus and God the Father are of the same substance. So Jesus and God the Father are equal and co-eternal and both God. Well, Arius, the bishop from Alexandria, took issue with that statement. He didn't believe that to be true. He didn't believe that Jesus was of the same substance as God. Rather, Arius promoted the idea that Jesus is a creation. Jesus is something made by God. And if he's made by God, he's lesser than God, right? If, you, uh, if you're a kid and you play with Play-Doh and you create something special, that Play-Doh is lesser than you. You made it, it's uh, subordinate to you. So Arius is teaching Jesus is God's Plato of some sort. Jesus is not divine. He shouldn't be worshipped. Now, what you probably don't know about Santa, I mean, you know he's a jolly fellow. He gives gifts on Christmas. He's got the long white beard. He's a happy guy. But you probably didn't know how passionate about theology he was. So Arius had the opportunity to explain his view on Jesus being a creation and not being God. And he's got the floor for about three, four, five minutes. He's going on with his lofty explanation. Santa's sitting in the corner. He's building up with tension. And eventually, Santa gets up, St. Nick gets up, walks across the room, and slaps Arius in the face for his view about Jesus. This is a true story. You probably think I'm making it up. This is a true story. Got up, walked across the room, slapped Santa in the face. I mean, who knew that Santa was that passionate and that violent? I didn't know he was that violent of a man. But in all seriousness, what got St. Nick so fired up? What would cause him to well up with so much emotion that he would get up, walk across the room, and slap another man in the face? And rest assured, justice was served. Santa was kicked out of the meeting. He was even in jail for a little bit. Maybe that adds street cred for Santa. I don't know, but at least you know he was passionate about theology. Hopefully what you'll see this morning is just how important the truth is that Santa was so passionate about, that St. Nick valued so much. See, right at the start of the passage that Lance just read in John chapter 1, we see that John identifies Jesus as the Word. If you look with me at John 1, verse 1, you see it says this, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See, when you think about what words actually are, this title and this description of Jesus makes a lot of sense. See, words are how we communicate thoughts. You have no idea what I'm thinking unless I say it to you in the form of words, right? 
So what words are, they're tangible, observable representations of intangible thoughts. They're expressions. And so the Bible is clear that God himself is spirit. Because he's spirit, I don't experience him by my five senses. Can't see him, can't touch him, can't smell him. It all goes on that way. And so what Jesus is as the word is he's the tangible expression of who God is. God is spirit. Jesus is God in the flesh. So when you look at Jesus Christ, you're looking at God himself. When you listen to Jesus Christ, you're listening to God himself. This is what John is telling us right at the beginning of this passage. If you want to know what God is like, you don't need to go on a spiritual journey. You don't need to check your horoscope. You don't need to go up to the mountains and meditate for hours. Open up your Bible, read about who Jesus Christ is, and pray to him, and you'll know who God is. So John writes uh, what he says about Jesus here at the beginning. He says, in the beginning, meaning that Jesus is before creation. Our Bible opens, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John takes this same language and applies it to Jesus. Except before he gets to the word created, he wants to tell us that the word was there. So in the beginning was the word. He's trying to tell us that Jesus Christ is self-existent. Jesus Christ comes before creation. Jesus Christ actually, in verse 3, if you look there with me, is the one who does the creating. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's about as clear a statement as it gets. Jesus Christ, prior to creation, Jesus Christ, the agent of creation. He did it. He's the creator of all things. And so, of course, we also see John explains that Jesus Christ is God himself in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right there in those first three verses, John makes it clear Jesus is the Word. He's the tangible expression of God. He's self-existent. He wasn't created. He's equal with God the Father, and he created all things himself. Jesus is the eternal God who we owe worship. And here's why this is so important. Because if Jesus is not God, so if we ascribe to what Arius said, this is what's running through Santa's mind as he's sitting there. He's like, I got to get these gifts to these kids, but this guy, he's really talking crazy. I got to do something about it. If Jesus is not God, here are the implications. Number one, you and I are guilty of idolatry for worshiping him. We just came here. We sang songs to him. We prayed to him. I'm telling you to read about him and to continue to pray to him. If Jesus is not God, that is a violation of the first and second commandment, and we are all guilty of sin and should stop what we're doing immediately. So we need to figure out, is this correct? Is Jesus God or is he not? The Bible couldn't be clearer that there is one God. The Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one so this isn't a polytheistic religion. We don't believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God. And so if Jesus isn't him, we should stop worshiping him. Second, if Jesus is not God, then your sins are not forgiven. It's a powerful story in Mark chapter 2. So Mark is a gospel. The entirety of it tells you the story of Jesus' life and ministry here on this earth. And there's one powerful story in Mark chapter 2 where uh, Jesus is teaching in a house in Capernaum. 
northern Israel. And as he's teaching in the house, these four men uh, lower their friend who's paralyzed on a mat, and they lower him through the top of the roof right to where Jesus is, is teaching. So what they're believing as they're doing this, and you think about that, they've, they've climbed on top of a roof with a friend who's paralyzed on a mat. They've attached ropes and pulleys and whatnot so that they can lower him down because they believe that Jesus Christ has the power to heal their paralyzed friend. Jesus is demonstrating that he's God. The text tells us he sees their faith. Again, think about that. I don't see your faith. You don't see my faith. Because we're human beings and we're not God. Only God can see faith. And so the text tells us that Jesus sees the faith of these four men and the paralyzed man on the mat. And Jesus' first words to him are, son, your sins are forgiven. Immediately, there's a religious elite who are, standing, who are sitting around hearing Jesus say this. And in their hearts, they start to say, how is it possible for this man to say that he forgives sins? Only God can do that. Again, they don't say it out loud, they're saying it in their heads. Jesus perceives what they're saying and then speaks to that. He says, just so you know, I have authority to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralyzed man and he says, rise and walk. And before everybody in that room in Capernaum, a paralyzed man who couldn't walk before gets up and he's walking now and the presumption is that his sins are forgiven because the man who just made him get up and walk told him that his sins are forgiven. See, throughout the Bible, prophets perform miracles. The apostles perform miracles. The the special act there is not Jesus telling the paralyzed guy to get up and walk, as amazing as that is. The special act in that text is that Jesus forgave his sins. Not one of the prophets in the Old Testament, not one of the apostles in the New Testament ever had the authority to forgive sins. Only Jesus could do that. In Hebrews chapter 1, there's a long diatribe about who Jesus is. Some of the titles that Jesus has given in that chapter, I encourage you to read it. Hebrews 1 calls Jesus Lord, calls him God, calls him God's son, and we are commanded in that passage to worship him. And so when I look at those passages and I look at the Bible and the totality of those texts, it's demonstrating quite clearly Jesus Christ is God and he is worthy of of our worship. Your sins are only forgiven in worshiping Jesus Christ, the one true God. You don't worship him, your sins are not forgiven. But that's not all that the council at Nicaea affirms. So remember we had this setting, 300 bishops, uh, Santa who needs anger management. He's also passionate about the fact, not that Jesus is 100% God, but also 100% man. Huh? Well, if we read down further in John chapter 1, John's going to tell us more about Jesus. Look with me at verse 14. And the word, the word is Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, God, became a human being. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when we discussed the tabernacle, we talked about this very verse. That word... The word became flesh and dwelt among us can also be translated as he pitched a tent among us. He tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was that system of worship where uh, animals would be sacrificed and priests had to light candles and put bread in a certain way, all to enter into the presence of God. 
John is telling us that the presence of God became a human being and lived amongst human beings, 100% man. See, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is how God came to be with us, which is what we need the most. Here's why this is so important, because we want to hold these together. Jesus is fully God, meant to be worshipped, but also fully man. See, Jesus needed to be man in order to pay for our sins. Let's think practically about that for a minute. Sin is my desire, it's your desire to disobey the things of God, ultimately that are going to harm myself and harm the community around us. We often don't think of sin that way, but that's what it is. It starts internal as rebellion, and then it moves to external. In the end, it harms myself, and in the real end, it harms the entirety of society. You look around the world and you wonder why it's an imperfect place. The answer is really, really simple. Sinners live on this world. And sinners sin, and that's why the world is bad. If sinners didn't sin, the world wouldn't be bad. It's as simple as that. Sin, secondly, sin presents itself in the form of temptations. Right? So sin is never uh, you know, the, the big ugly goblin from around the corner in the darkness. Sin is something that you desire. It's something that you want. It presents itself as something that is a good thing to have. If you remember the language of Genesis chapter 3, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, was a delight to, to her eyes, and pleasing and desirable to make one wise. She's looking at the fruit and just dreaming about how wonderful it is. That's how temptation is. It presents itself as something that we desire, that we need, that will make our experiences better. So, in order for our sins to be paid for, we need someone who experiences that. Someone who has been through a temptation, who's seen a temptation, who knows what a temptation is like, and has overcome it without sin. Only a human being can do that. That's why it's important for us to also hold that Jesus Christ is 100% man. Animals, for example. So remember they sacrificed animals in the tabernacle and the temple. Animals cannot overcome temptation. They don't have temptation. Temptation is, the very definition of it, is the desire to do something that's displeasing to God. Animals cannot obey God. They don't have moral codes. They're not moral creatures. That's why the Old Testament sacrificial system is insufficient. The blood of a lamb, of a goat, of a ram, of a bull, it cannot pay for the sins of you or me. It just can't. In the same way, if Jesus doesn't put on humanity, become flesh and dwell among us, he can't die for our sins either. If you think about it, the scriptures tell us quite clearly, God cannot be tempted. And so if Jesus continues to exist on this world as God fully with no humanity, he can't be tempted, he can't die for our sins because God cannot die. And so therefore, Jesus became man in order to overcome temptation, overcome sin, ultimately overcome death, resurrect from the grave, and save all who believe and trust in him. You've got to hold both of those in full tension in our minds. Jesus is 100% God. He's got the authority to forgive you. Jesus is 100% man. He's got the ability to die for you. Both of those are super important. And so when Arius stands up, at the council at Nicaea and says, Jesus is not God and he's something more than man. Maybe Arius has something in his mind like a Hercules of some sort, part God, part man. 
I don't know, but whatever it is, it isn't Jesus, and it's insufficient to pay for our sins. What Arius is effectively saying there is faith in Christ is idolatry, your sins are not forgiven, and Jesus' death is nothing more than a moving sacrifice similar to a soldier dying for his country. We know that Jesus Christ is a whole lot more than that. And so Santa, knowing that, that Jesus Christ is more than that, slapped Arius in the face. Jesus, fully God and fully man, dwelt among us to take care of sin and give us the gift of salvation. So that's who he is. Let's talk about what the word does. If we can use terms like creator, self-existent, fully God, fully man to describe who the word is, we want to nail down clearly what is it that he's doing. Well, let's get back to the text of John 1. Look with me at verse 9, which says this. John, speaking about Christ, says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John calls Jesus the true light, meaning the true presence of God. You remember the manifestations of that in the Old Testament? You had the light that led the Israelites out of Egypt. You had the light that they would light up in the tabernacle, the lampstand. God was always manifested as light to guide Israel. And so John says that Jesus Christ himself is the true light. And he says that Jesus came into the world in part to give light to everyone. So what's he talking about here? How does Jesus give light to everyone? Well, we know he doesn't mean salvation because not everybody's saved. And just a couple verses later, we learn that Jesus, his own people reject him. But here's what he does mean. Jesus comes into the world to give objective revelation, the light of revelation to the world about God. So you think about the way light operates in a dark room. You can't see the objects that are there. But if we turn on the light and there's a group of people in that room, it's objective what's there. There's chairs, there's a camera, there's TVs. We can all see it because the lights are on. Light gives objective revelation to all who can see what's there. Jesus Christ came into the world to give objective revelation about who God is. To say it in another way, Jesus Christ came into the world to create a dividing line, to make it obvious. This is light. This is darkness. Either your sins are forgiven or they are not forgiven. And what determines which side of the line that you are is not race, it's not ethnicity, it's not culture, it's not socioeconomic status, it's not your promotion at work. It's not the number of friends that you have. It's not the quality or lack of quality of your relationships. It's not your technical skills. It's not your, your philanthropy, your benevolence towards others, your ability to say please and thank you. It's not any of that. What determines whether you're on the light side of the line or the dark side of the line is how you approach Jesus Christ. And that's it. Verse 11 states, that even Jesus' own, look at verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They chose to remain in the dark. There's that dividing line. The way they approached Jesus Christ, they looked at him, they said, nah, not God, let's reject him, he's out. And so these are the people through whom, this is Israel that, that John's talking about, these are the people through whom God made all those promises we've talked about these last seven weeks. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the whole nation of Israel. 
This is the nation that God had been promising to bless, and they completely reject the blessing because it came in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who challenged their sins. They called Jesus a blasphemer. As you read on in the Gospels, they tell him that he had a demon, telling him that he's crazy. They beat him, they spit on him, they hand him over to the Roman authorities so that he could be crucified like a common criminal. They rejected Jesus, choosing to be on the side of darkness rather than on the side of light. But verse 12 gives us this unbelievably great promise. Look, with, look at verse 12 with me. But all who did receive him. So we're told in verse 11, Jesus' own people, the Israelites, they rejected him. They didn't receive him. But verse 12, all who did receive him. And then John defines what he means by that. Who believed in his name. So if I believe in Jesus Christ's name, I have received him. He gave the right to become children of God. And look at verse 13, how that happened. Who were born not of blood. So it's not physical descent, not of the will of the flesh. It's not effort by me choosing, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's what John is saying. Believing in Jesus Christ is receiving Jesus Christ. You receive Jesus Christ, you become the children of God that God has been blessing and making promises to for all time's sake. Here's the point. God created for himself a people born of faith. God's children, the ones to receive all the blessings of his promises, weren't just a nation. They weren't a specific ethnic group. See, God's children are those who have come to the light by believing in his son. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to reveal to the world the true way to God and create a people of faith who are blessed and forgiven. So here's the takeaways. Here's what I want you to go home with, remember, thinking about, believing in, trusting in. Number one, the fact that Jesus is fully God means that he can save you. He can forgive you of all of your sins. Matter of fact, he's the only one who can forgive you of all of your sins. He is God. One of the biggest hang-ups for people in coming to church is this concept of forgiveness. See, a lot of people, it's not, I think the misconception in our world today is that uh, the reason people don't come to church or get involved with church or take Jesus seriously is that they've assessed the facts. They believe the Bible to be fantastical. They believe this to all be a myth and not, not believable. That's not the case, at least not in America. Vast majority of people believe that there's a God out there. What they don't believe is that they can be forgiven for what they've done. Everybody takes an honest self-assessment. You know what you think about. You know what you like to do. You know exactly who you are and what you've done. And so you believe that walking into the four walls where a church gathers to worship, I am not good enough to do that. Get that thought out of your mind. Jesus is fully God. He can forgive you. Look at the people we've just talked about who he has forgiven. Abraham took his wife and handed her over to Pharaoh. I can't think of a more wicked thing to do. Oh, but Moses says, okay, hold my water, Abraham. Moses goes and murders two guys. David says, that's cute. David goes, rapes a woman, and murders her husband, and then acts like he didn't do any of it. God saved all of those people. I don't know what you've done. Maybe it's worse than that. Hopefully not. Don't tell me. Um, but whatever it is, Jesus is fully God, and if he can forgive those guys, he can forgive you as well. See, Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up and then come to church. 
Nobody takes a bath to prepare themselves for the shower. He says, come as you are, and I will make you clean. Jesus Christ is fully God. He has the ability to forgive you and make you clean. Second takeaway, the fact that Jesus is fully man means that he's an acceptable replacement for you, and he understands you. At the end of Hebrews chapter 4, one of my favorite passages, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it talks about how we don't serve a high priest who can't identify with our weaknesses. It's not like we're serving this transcendent God who looks at our lives and says, get it together. You're messing this up. You've got no idea how to live life properly. He's speaking as one from experience. Because Jesus Christ became uh, fully man, he understands the difficulties of this life. I'm pretty sure once or twice Jesus may have even worshipped without air conditioning. He may have done that. Uh, we desire to be one way, yet vices take hold, sin creeps up. We find ourselves disappointing ourselves yet again. It's just life. That's how we live our lives. We don't live perfectly. But Hebrews 4 says that we serve a high priest, Jesus Christ, who gets that. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to fight that battle and that temptation, yet he's the perfect one who overcame it. And because, we, and because he faced every temptation but didn't sin, Jesus is a worthy and acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. He died for us. His blood can really cover your guilt if you believe in him. Third and final takeaway, the fact that believing in Jesus makes you children of God means that the promises and the mission of Israel is yours to be had. What God promised all along to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those guys, I'm going I'm to give you offspring like the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give you this land here in the Middle East. Well, you know how those promises are fulfilled in us? When Abraham looks up at the stars and sees that God's promising him all these offspring, figuratively, that's you and I. We are represented by those stars that Abraham saw. See, Jesus Christ promised that the meek shall inherit the earth. I'm going to give you the end of the story, but I want you to still come. We're in week seven. We got 10 weeks. Don't hear the end and say, all right, I got the end. I'm going to go somewhere else. The end of this story, you know how this ends? Jesus wins. He raises up a people for himself. He comes back to reign as the eternal holy God in power and glory and authority, and we reign with him across the entire world. Heaven meets earth, and Jesus Christ's people reign alongside of him. And we receive that by faith. It's not by effort. It's not by looking at this text and saying, you know what, pastor, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. My heart's bad. I'm going to try a little bit harder. That's not how it works. You can't try harder. You won't succeed. You'll fail. Maybe you get two days that are good, three days, three weeks. You're going to fall again. That's just how life works. You are a sinner who desires to sin. You can only be saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so, just as God promised to bless, be faithful to, save, and bring Israel into the promised land, God promises to bring us into eternity, into his presence with his son for all eternity. And so you, you are here to receive that, to believe that, to have the blessings of that. And just as Israel was to be a holy nation chosen by God, bringing the presence of God to the rest of the world, you are called to do the same. So... You are not just, you're not simply a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a construction worker, a son, a daughter, a husband, a dad, whatever. The, these things do not ultimately define you. What defines you 
is who you are in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, you are a chosen son or daughter of God. And sons and daughters get all the blessings of their parents. And our parent happens to be the eternal God of the universe. How great a blessing is that? You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But because God is good, he sent his son to die on your behalf to give you the most amazing gift of all. And so I pray you embrace that. By faith, you receive that. You're granted eternity with him and that you would extend that good news to all you come in contact with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for uh, the truths in this word, that you are a good God who sent your son, fully God, fully man, to redeem us by dying on the cross, paying for our sins with the ability to forgive us of our sins. And so I pray that all who hear my voice this morning, if they haven't received that, they haven't trusted Jesus Christ yet, that this would be the morning. They would seek this opportunity to observe you, to look at your beauty, look at your grace and your glory that's only found in you, and they would trust you as their Lord and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.